Good morning, church. I tell you, you know, I tell you every week that I love and appreciate you, but some weeks I, I like to be a little more, more specific. Why, why do I love you so very much? There are so many reasons. Last, last Sunday, uh, we announced in first service that uh, we were adopting the angel tree children and, and preparing gifts for them. By the time second service rolled around, all of the names had already been taken. They didn't even get to announce it in second service. That's how generous you are in adopting those kids and preparing gifts for them. I know several have signed up already to go to South Texas and hand those gifts out. Then on Wednesday, I, I heard about the, the Friendspeak dinner, Thanksgiving potluck meal uh, that, that so many of, of our members shared with our neighbors from all over the world, people and food from all over the world, sharing and, and being together in fellowship. On Thursday, our ladies came up and did hearts and hands, preparing gifts for children and for people in need all over, all over the, the place, all over the, the world, and, and all the places that those gifts will go. On Saturday, a, a group of people came here and loaded up potatoes, 300 sacks of potatoes that you all donated to share with our with our neighbors in need. These are the kinds of good things that you are doing to share and to bless and to love our neighbors. And it's not just, it's not just this congregation. It's not just you that, that's doing that. Churches all over the world are doing this kind of thing for their neighbors. I, I was just reading this week about the Memorial Road congregation in Edmond, and, and what they do every year, they have an international Thanksgiving dinner for their, for their neighbors. Uh, and what I think is, is interesting and amazing about the way that they do that dinner there is that they prepare it halal, meaning that it's permissible for, for their Muslim neighbors, their Islamic neighbors, to enjoy that meal with them. Last year, they fed over 300 refugees from Afghanistan uh, that had been relocated in their neighborhood. This is the kind of thing that Christian people have always done. We've always strived, or at least we should have always been striving to do good to bless our neighbors, to love our neighbors, to, to be all things to all people so that we can reach people with the gospel. That, that's true, but unfortunately, this is also true. 46%, 46% of non-Christians, 46% of non-Christian people have a negative perception of the local church. I just kind of want you to... to Sit with that statistic for a second. Just let that kind of sink in. 46% of non-Christian people have a negative perception of the local church. That's not the percentage of people who are, who are, sort of have no feeling whatsoever about the local church. There are 33% just really don't have an opinion whatsoever about the local church. But 46% of people, of non-Christian people, have a negative perception of the local church. And to be fair, to be fair, some of that negative perception is probably well-deserved. Can we say that? That some of that negative perception is well-deserved. Some of that negative perception is exactly what it, what it should be. And some of it is not. Some of it is unfair. Some of it is unfair assumptions. Some of it is unfair accusations that people that aren't Christians have a negative perception about the church for unfair reasons that aren't true. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've experienced some of that negative perception that, that your unbelieving family and friends and neighbors and coworkers and classmates have about Christians or about the church. 
things that they assume about you, things that they say about you, negative feelings that they have towards you. And, and maybe, maybe you feel that, that sentiment, that negative perception growing. Maybe you feel like non-Christians have even more or even greater or higher negative perceptions about Christians and the church. Maybe you hear those kind of sentiments. Maybe people accuse you of being things that you're not. Maybe people say things about you or make assumptions about you. My question is, how do we respond to that? How do we respond when our Christian or our non-Christian neighbors have negative perceptions about us? How do we respond when our non-Christian family members have negative perceptions about us? How do we respond when our coworkers and classmates have negative perceptions about us? Do we get angry with them? Do we get defensive? Do, do we say we have to protect ourselves against them because maybe they might try to, to hurt us or harm us or shame us? And so how do we respond when our neighbors have unfair, unwarranted, negative perceptions about Christians or about the church? I want to read to you again from 1 Peter chapter 3. We've been reading this passage throughout this series, but I want to read it to you again with this in mind. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. Peter asks this question rhetorically. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who, who's going to harm you because you feed your neighbors? Who's going to harm you because you care, you care about the homeless? Who's going to harm you when you love your enemies? Who's going to harm you when you lay down your sword and say, I'm not fighting anybody. I'm not hurting anybody. Who's going to harm you when you're zealous for doing what is good? But Peter's no fool. He knows that most of the time, that's true, most of the time nobody's going to harm you when you're zealous for what is good, but sometimes, sometimes they will. Sometimes they'll still accuse you. Sometimes they'll still hate you. Sometimes they'll still harm you. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be, what's the word, church? Blessed. If you have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We've been talking a lot about that in this series. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. He says, there are going to be, there are going to be, I know it's kind of a paradox and you wouldn't think it, you wouldn't think that if you're zealous for doing what is good, that there's still going to be people that hate you and accuse you, but there will be. It's going to happen. And you just have to be, you have to be content with that. You have to realize that is going to happen. But here's what you do. You live your lives in such a way that you maintain a good conscience and so that their accusations come to nothing, so that they are put to shame. And I want us to continue following Paul and looking at Paul's life and how he dealt with unfair accusations and people hating him and hurting him and persecuting him and how we might imitate that in our lives. So we talked about how Paul went to Jerusalem even though he knew when I get to Jerusalem, people are out to get me. Something bad is going to happen in Jerusalem. Yeah, people don't like you very much around here. People have heard all kinds of rumors about you. And so Paul went out of his way 
to try to show people, I'm, I'm one of you. He went to the temple, he purified himself, he participated in, in Jewish rituals and customs. He did everything he could to say, I'm, I am one of you. But they hated him anyway. And a mob of people, an angry mob of people grabbed Paul, they beat him, and they tried to kill him. And they would have killed him if the Romans hadn't stepped in. So the Romans step in and protect Paul, and then for some reason, Paul talks them into allowing him to speak to the crowd. So Paul gets up and he speaks to this crowd who was just trying to kill him, and he tries again to tell them, I'm not against you. I don't hate you. I'm one of you. He speaks to them in their own language. He calls them brothers and fathers. He, he talks about how the God of our fathers is the one who sent Jesus, and he tries to relate to them, build bridges with them, but yet they hate him anyway, and they still want to kill him. And so Paul is put on trial in front of the, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, and he's put on, on trial in front of the Sanhedrin, and and in there, he mentions that he's on trial because of his hope in the resurrection. Well, the Sadducees didn't believe in the, the coming resurrection of the dead, and the Pharisees did. So now they start hating on each other and start fighting with each other, and Paul kind of gets pulled out of the mix. And then they're so determined, we have to stop this Paul guy. Even though he has said nothing against the Jewish people. He has said nothing against the law of Moses. He has said nothing against the temple. He has said nothing against their customs. They hate him anyway. And so a conspiracy is formulated where 40 men decide we're going to take a vow and we're not going to eat anything until we execute Paul. Well, Paul gets word of it through friends and family. His nephew warns him of what's happening. And so the, the Romans take him in protective custody and they move him to Caesarea. So they move him to the, the Roman capital of the province to protect him from this, this group of people who are determined to kill him. And in, in Caesarea, he goes on trial in front of the governor, Felix, and that's where we pick up our story. Acts chapter 24 and verse 1. So this is kind of a, a courtroom drama. So if you're, you're a fan of courtroom dramas, this is a courtroom drama. So I want you to picture that in your mind. Acts chapter 24 and verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, they laid him, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Now Tertullus is, is a lawyer, and I want you to hear how he, how he sort of works the room and how he's trying to work the governor, Felix. End of verse 2. Since through you, this is Tertullus, since through you we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, he's speaking to the governor, by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Do, do you see how Tertullus is going? He's going beyond respect. It's it's flattery, isn't he? He's flattering the governor. He's trying to manipulate the governor to, to see things his way and to rule in favor of the, the Jewish people who have hired him to represent them. He says, in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. We don't want to detain you any further. I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Verse 5, for we have found this man, Paul, we have found this man a plague 
one who stirs up riots among the, all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Now, everything Tertullus is saying is it's false. It's not true. Paul, Paul never stirred up a riot once. Paul never stirred up riots, much less all over the world. He wasn't a ringleader of some sect. He, he, he didn't try to profane the temple. We, we read the story, didn't we? He purified himself. He didn't even bring any of his Gentile brothers and sisters into the temple to defile it. He wasn't doing what they were accusing him of doing. But when we read this, when we read this and we say, that, that's not fair, that, that, that's untrue, what they're saying about him is not true, we shouldn't feel sorry for Paul. Maybe we should think about the words of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, blessed are you, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said, it's, it's going to be like this. It's going to be like this. If you do what you're supposed to do, if you live how you're called to live, if you, if you follow me, there are going to be people there are going to be people who respond well, and there are going to be people who love you for loving them and being kind, but there are going to be people that hate you anyway. There are going to be people who accuse you anyway. There are going to be people who are out to get you anyway. Don't get angry. Don't get defensive. Don't yell and scream and stomp your feet. Rejoice and be glad, because this is how they treated the prophets who were before you. You are blessed. You are blessed when people hate you and accuse you falsely and revile you and persecute you. Verse 8, Tertullus is continuing. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And, the governor, and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years... You have been a judge over this nation. I cheerfully make my defense. Do you, do you see the difference already between the way that Paul speaks to the governor, Felix, and the way that, that Tertullus spoke to him? There's, there's respect. There's respect. Paul is respectful. He's kind, but he's not flattering. He's not manipulating. He's not trying to trick the governor into seeing things his way or doing things his way. Paul's, Paul's concerned about the facts. I'm going to present the facts to you, and I cheerfully make my defense. Why? Because Christians aren't supposed to flatter people into getting what we want. Christians aren't supposed to manipulate people and trick people. Paul's not trying to trick anyone. He's not trying to manipulate anyone. He's not trying to flatter anyone. He goes on to say, verse 11, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Isn't it interesting? Paul invites scrutiny. He invites examination. Exa Check it out. You can, you can verify these things. 
What I'm presenting to you is the truth. I, I invite scrutiny. Show me where I've gone wrong. Show me what I've done wrong. They can't prove what they're trying to prove to you, what they're accusing me of doing. His entire defense revolves around, I was not causing trouble. I wasn't stirring up a crowd. I, I wasn't inciting a riot. I, I wasn't doing the things that they accused me of. I wasn't defiling the temple. I wasn't doing these things because that's not how Paul operated and that's not how Christians are to operate. Yes, people were treating him unfairly in Jerusalem, in Caesarea, and everywhere that Paul went. But even when they treated him unfairly, even when they accused him of things he didn't do, he didn't do what they're accusing him of doing. In fact, Paul would say things to, to the churches, like what he said to the church in Thessalonica. He says, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders. So that you may walk properly before outsiders. Paul was always aware of the fact and always telling Christians, the world is watching you. The world is watching you. And your credibility is on the line. Yes, Yes, they don't always like you. Yes, they accuse you of things that aren't true. Yes, sometimes they get angry at you and their anger is unjustified. Yes, that's true. But you aspire to live quiet lives. Mind your own affairs. Take care of your stuff and work hard with your hands so that you walk well before outsiders because the world is watching you. So that when Paul is on trial, he can say, I didn't do that. I didn't stir up a crowd. I wasn't getting people angry. I wasn't fighting. I, I wasn't trying to overturn anything. I, I was preaching truth, loving people, and you can check it out. I, I invite your scrutiny. I invite your examination. Verse 14, but this I confess to you. That according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul says, we worship the same God. We worship the same God. We read the same Bible. Everything I'm saying is in accordance with everything that's written by the prophets and in the law of Moses. We worship the same God. We read the same Bible. We have the same hope in the resurrection of the dead. Paul's claim is simply that it's Jesus and it's through Jesus that all of these things are coming true. But he said, all, all of this, we're on the same page about. He says in verse 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. I had no intention of getting crossways with, with God, certainly, but even with man. I, I don't even want to, I don't want to get crossway with people either. I want to do everything above board. I want to do everything in a way that, that I can say, see, what I'm doing is true and right and good and pure and lovely and excellent and praiseworthy. And Paul could say that with a clear conscience. Does that mean Paul was perfect? Of course not. Of course Paul's not perfect. 
But he could say, all these things that you're accusing me of, they're not true. They're not true. If Paul really had been stirring up crowds, if Paul really had been getting people angry and saying, let's, let's, let's overturn this stuff, let's, let's fight against these people, Let's do this, let's do that. If he had done what they accused him of, then they would have a case. And they could just put Paul to death and be done with it. But Paul hadn't done those things. Verse 17, now after several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring alms, that is charity, to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia... He says, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. He was zealous for doing what was good. He was, he was bringing charity. He was bringing offerings. He had purified himself in the temple. And, and the people who accused him and started all of this in the first place, they weren't even present in the courtroom. Where are they? Where are they? The the people from Asia that had accused him initially, they hadn't even come to court to make the accusation. There is no proof of the things that they're leveling against him. Verse 20, or else let these men, those that are there, themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, before the Sanhedrin. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. In other words, I I was in the Sanhedrin. I I was on trial before the council of these men. And they had their opportunity to say, what had had I done wrong? What crime had I committed? And the only thing that upset the crowd was that I said I believed in the resurrection, which the Pharisees also agree with, which they also believe. Nothing else. There was nothing else. I hadn't stirred anybody up. I hadn't gotten crowds angry. I wasn't fighting with anybody. I wasn't hurting anybody. I was teaching truth. And yet they are accusing me falsely. There's no evidence to convict Paul of anything. Yet Felix holds Paul in prison. If we keep keep reading the story, Felix holds Paul in prison for another two years. Even though there's no evidence, There's no way to convict him of anything. And so Felix holds him in prison for two years, never really ruling on his case. Listen to what Paul would say later to Titus. We've gone back to Titus several times. Titus chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Over and over again, Peter says the same things, Jesus says the same things, Paul says the same kinds of things. He's watching us. Live your life this way. Be a model of good works. Integrity, dignity, sound speech, so that they have nothing evil to say about us. Now, that's not to say that they're not going to say evil about us. It's not to say that they're not going to hate us anyway. They may hate you anyway. This isn't to try to manipulate people into liking you. Because you're not in charge of whether or not people like you. You're not in charge of whether or not people accuse you. You're not in charge of whether or not people treat you fairly. But what you are in charge of is your attitude 
and your actions. Your attitude and actions determine the accuracy of their accusations. I know that sounds like Dr. Seuss, but stay with me. Your attitude and actions determine the accuracy of their accusations. You're not in control of whether or not they accuse you. They may accuse you. You may have people in your life that you just can't get a fair shake. Every time you turn around, they, they make all kinds of assumptions about you, especially because you're a Christian. You're not in charge of whether or not people like you. You're not in charge of how people feel about you, what people think about you, what people say about you, or what people do to you. But you are in charge of whether or not their accusations are accurate, whether or not they are true. I can't help it if somebody thinks poorly of me. I can't help it if somebody feels poorly about me. I can't help it if somebody treats me poorly. But I can help it if I don't make sure, or if I do make sure that my attitudes and my actions are what they are supposed to be. You can live your life not so that you're never hated, not so that you're always liked, not so that you're never accused, but so that when you are accused, when you are accused, your accusers are put to shame because their accusations are not accurate. That's how we can live our lives. We can live our lives in such a way that when they accuse us, our accusers are put to shame. And, and when this happens, when this happens, when people think poorly of you personally or of us collectively because we're followers of Jesus, sometimes we need to check ourselves and we need to examine ourselves and say, are their accusations accurate? And if their accusations are accurate, we need to change. And if we examine ourselves and we say, that's not accurate, they hate us without cause, then we do what Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. If they accuse you falsely, then you are blessed. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on his account, your reward is great in heaven. This is the gospel, isn't it? This is the gospel. I will follow Jesus regardless of the consequences. I will do things his way. I will love my friends. I will love my neighbors. I will love my brothers and sisters. I will even love my enemies. I will live my life so that those who accuse me falsely are put to shame because their accusations are inaccurate. That's, that's the life that we are adopting when we become followers of Jesus, isn't it? It's not to say we're going to be perfect. None of us are perfect. But we have to live our lives above board. And when people accuse us, we have to examine ourselves and say, is there anything to that accusation? Is it accurate? And if it is, I need to change. And if it's not, I need to consider myself blessed. Consider yourself blessed. Maybe there's somebody here this morning and you're ready to join with Jesus, to join with Jesus in, in eternity, but to join with Jesus now, in the present, to take up your cross, to die to yourself, to be buried with Jesus in baptism, to be raised up, to live this, this different kind of life, a life where you aspire to live quietly, Mind your own affairs, 
Work hard with your hands so that you live properly before outsiders. Maybe you're ready to begin that sort of life following Jesus. Or maybe you've fallen away from that sort of life and you need to come back. Maybe there's changes in your life that you need to make. And maybe today is the day you start making those changes. Maybe you just need prayers. Maybe you need encouragement. Our shepherds would love to pray with you in the prayer room after service, so you can come forward now. Let's together we stand and sing this song.